Hi, my name is Bob Sander, and I'm a professional storyteller. For over 30 years, my repertoire has included a group of personal narrative stories. Some of these are childhood memories, stories lived when, well, basically when I was a knucklehead in training, so to speak. Other stories come from my college student era, and still others date from my time as a beginner parent. And you know, by then I was kind of a professional knucklehead. While I do tell personal tales that are, well, either too risque or too this or too that to include here, you know, if you come to dinner some night, we'll eat and drink and I'll, I'll spill the beans on all those stories. But this collection, this bunch makes the cut. So I hope you enjoy them. And as for truthfulness, well, just know that these stories are absolutely 100% as true as I can make them. Enjoy. In Indiana, basketball is inescapable. It's like webbed feet or feathers. Hoosiers are just born with a basketball at the ready. Entry into the basketball faith in Indiana happens faster than the Pope can say envy. In 1964, you could not reach the sixth grade in Indiana without playing basketball in some way, shape, or form. And if that is not totally true, it is so nearly true as to be an acceptable lie. By 64, my friend Ron and I had survived the snares and pitfalls presented by our fourth grade teacher, as well as the slightly less hazardous milieu of fifth grade. Summer was nearly half gone. A new school year loomed. Figuratively speaking, school did not mind if you showed up in a straitjacket. School just wanted you to sit still and listen. The mental focus and inactivity that it demanded made us crazy. Now, basketball, on the other hand, was both mental and physical. Its essential element was that it was all-absorbing, dribbling, passing, driving to the basket for a layup, free throws, seeing a play in your mind, you could just let go, merge into the moment with your entire body and mind. Basketball kept us sane. Now, some schools formed basketball teams as early as elementary school, but not our school. Rapid growth forced our town to quickly build a second, much smaller elementary to handle the overflow of us baby boom kids. Starting in third grade, I attended this much smaller school. There was only one classroom of each grade level. A sixth grade basketball team drawn from a single class did not seem feasible. But our teacher, Mr. Knapp, he lobbied hard for a team anyway. True, he said, it wasn't a very big talent pool. But the point was, play fair, play hard, have a good time. And for that, he said, there were enough of us to play and then some. The principal did not want the expense of a team, but Mr. Knapp wouldn't take no for an answer. He just pitched the idea over and over, and as, sixth, as fifth grade ended, we got word. Starting in the fall, we could have a sixth grade team. 
Now, that summer, we just practiced our brains out in hope of being chosen for the team. From my adult perspective, I now observe the odds were pretty favorable. There were only 11 boys in the whole class. My friend Ron was naturally athletic. Swimming, track and field, basketball, and on and on was all second nature to him. I loved basketball, too, and I played the best I could, but I played on a lesser level than he did. Plus, left to my own devices, I might just as likely go wander off into the woods to catch frogs and snakes or read a comic book or draw. One day, we were playing at the outdoor basketball courts at our local swimming club when a kid walked over and asked, could he join us? Uh, we're in the middle of around the world, I panted, and I am beating his butt. You wait till we finish. That boy looked kind of odd. How, though? I, I couldn't quite put my finger on it. He was half a head shorter than me. But, but you know, really, that wasn't it, because I'd grown five inches that one summer. For the moment, nearly everyone was shorter than me. Maybe it was his hair. He had way more hair than either of us. We both wanted a Beatles cut, like his, but our parents would not allow it. To ease my jealousy, I suppose, I told myself it looked more like Prince Valiant from the comic strips. Yeah, no problem, he said. I'm glad to wait. You know, if, if you don't know this already, uh, here's how you play around the world. First, you shoot a layup on the right side of the basket. Then you shoot a shot from the baseline off to the right. Then another from out and halfway back on the right. And then corner right. And then from the free throw position. And then again, same positions on the left, ending with a left-hand layup. Then you go in reverse, clear back to the beginning. If you make your shot, you keep going, and if you miss your shot, you start all over again. So you can see it takes a while. No, 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 said Ron. That, that takes too long. Let's play Let's play two-on-one. Two-on-one. That's a game of constantly shifting alliances. Two people guard you while you try to score, but one of the two is always on the verge of deserting you as a partner, and vice versa. And that's to drift away and pick off the rebound. And then you team up with the other guy, and so on. It's really fast-paced. You're always under pressure to make a shot, figure when to bolt, and so on. Oh, I love two-on-one, said the newcomer. Yeah, okay, okay, I said, let's do it. I had the other game in my pocket anyway, which, if not a lie, was at least a pretty flimsy claim. What was it about this kid that seemed so unusual? It wasn't just his haircut. I didn't have time to think about it any longer because Ron grabbed the ball and drove to the bucket and scored, and, well, we were off and running just like that. The new kid was shorter than either one of us, but he was very fast. He started making shots from unexpected places all over the court. He scarcely needed any time to set up for a jump shot. Mercy, I yelled. You are mega fast. I was fitting the word mercy into conversation as much as I possibly could. Roy Orbison was growling it out on the radio that time in the summer. It was that song, Pretty Woman, and I stole it with giddy pleasure. Mercy, I said again in as Orbison a tone as I could manage, while still guarding Ron. Gotta be fast, said the new guy. I got two older brothers, you know. Suddenly he shot forward like a firecracker just exploded in his underwear, flicked the ball aside from Ron's dribbling hand, and made a layup and scored. It was as if 
Curly had just scored on Moe and Larry. It's just unthinkable. We looked flat-footed, and we felt like idiots. Man, said Ron, you're fast. Yeah, mercy, I echoed. You live around here? People from out of town were come to the pool for day visits all the time. I figured he was one of them. Well, I do now, he said. My dad just bought a house. We move in next Monday. Ah, oh, cool. We're at South 4th Street. South 4th? That's where Ron lives. Ron lives at 4th and Elm. I live on 6th and Byland. We're just blocks away from each other. We're going to be neighbors. Oh, great, he said. Hey, listen, uh, what, what year are you going to be in school? Ron looked at me. We were thinking the same thing. This guy would be perfect for our basketball team. <sighs> we braced ourselves for the inevitable letdown when things seemed too good to be true. Was he too old? Was he too young? Sixth grade. Sixth grade? Oh, man, that's perfect. That's our grade. Our teacher's forming a basketball team. You got to be on it, said Ron. Mercy, yeah, I said. You got to be. Oh, it's fine by me, he said in reply. I love basketball. Oh, cool. Well, so then, I asked, what's your name? Janet. Mercy. The first few years of a young male's second decade are critical to the fragile, developing ego. The other critical periods are the third, fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh decades. Things to begin to level out after that. Nascent masculinity, supposedly tough and rugged, is surprisingly susceptible to challenge early on. This seems kind of counterintuitive, but it is so. Here's a loose example. A girl, any age, outshines a teenage boy at anything. The boy immediately finds a way to downplay the girl's performance as luck or chance or an accident. Then he quickly changes the subject or the activity, and this keeps the girl from making pesky repeat actions that interfere with the boy's preferred vision of reality. In this regard, Ron and I were just standard-issue, unenlightened Hoosier boys. But, on the other hand, we had just finished 45 minutes of fast-paced, semi-rough, all-out, two-on-one, and there was plenty of repeat proof of Janet's ample abilities. Her skills, if not her size, exceeded our own. And though it was traitorous to admit it, there was no getting around it. She was our equal and then some. When it came time to part, the only thing to say was, I gotta go. Great game, Janet. You're monstrous fast. Mercy, yeah, I added. Your jump shot's just dead on. Way to go. We slapped her hard on the back the way we'd slap each other after a good game. Maybe even a little harder. And she slapped right back. Right, she said. Good game. Let's do it again. I'll get my brothers to join us next time. Are those courts down the hill from the school? C can we use them when school's out? Yeah. Ah, that's good. Well, take care, you guys. See you later. Summer just oozed across the calendar at the same pace a snake crawls through broken glass. Very slowly. I can't tell you how many games of basketball we three played. Too many to count. Many's the day we would play till supper time, only to return after supper and play till the color fled with the sun. The net vanished and the hoop became just a shadow. As it turns out, 
It was also the last summer in my life when time ever moved quite that slowly. On those endless evenings, when the darkness crept in and stole our ability to gauge distance, we still continued to fling the ball at the backboard silhouette. We just couldn't give it up. It wasn't that we somehow knew this was going to be the longest time experience we'd ever have. No, we were, we were just three sixth-grade Hoosier kids lost in the mystical experience of basketball. Ronnie! The call came from down the way. That's my mom, you guys. I gotta go. See you tomorrow. Yep, see ya. Good game, man. You too. Janet and I usually packed it in there, but not this night. Hey, she said, you know that long wooden walk bridge over the creek by Ron's backyard? Yeah. Oh, I got an idea. After it spans the creek, there's a long stretch of ground under the bridge that kind of slants up till the walkway reaches the ground level, right? So, so there's this couple, boyfriend and girlfriend. They walk across the bridge every night. I've seen them. They listen to music on a transistor. Big deal. Everybody's got transistors nowadays. Now, that, that was transistor radios. And, of course, I didn't have one yet. But I didn't mention that. Uh, well, no, no, here's the thing. They don't pay attention to anything except each other. I've seen it. Now, if somebody was to get up underneath that bridge, real quiet-like, and wait till they were right above. Well, I bet we could scare them so bad they'd pee their pants. Oh, I was a sucker for good ideas like that. Plus, I loved the way Janet went from an anonymous someone to we inside a single sentence. Hey, yeah, that sounds good. Oh, no, but wait, what if the guy comes after us? I mean, you'll get off because you're a girl, but he'll beat the crap out of me. What about that? Yeah, I thought about that. There's a chain link fence on both sides of the bridge all the way up to the road. He's got to go all that way first, then double back. By that time, we'll be hiding in my dad's garage. Oh, yeah, but what if he jumps the fence? Oh, he won't jump the fence. How do you know he's not going to jump the fence? Oh, I just know. Trust me. Well, how can you go against ironclad logic like that? So off we went. And soon enough, the two of us were installed underneath the bridge, maybe three feet below the walkway above. The boards were spaced closely enough so that we could not be seen, especially in that soft twilight. We lay back like two cats awaiting their prey, fingers laced, hands behind our heads, talking and grinning at the mental duress and the wet underwear we were about to inflict now, sure enough, in no time at all, the sound of pop music skimmed across the evening air. The unsuspecting couple stepped onto the far end of the bridge. They were maybe 50 yards away and closing fast. And then they came closer and then closer. And then they stopped. We waited. There were no footsteps. Music still kind of distant. What were they doing? Why aren't they coming? With graceful stealth, Janet ventured a little peek and then slipped back to her position. What's going on, Janet? Are they coming or not? Nope. 
Why not? No answer. Janet, why not? Why aren't they coming? Well, they're, they're kissing. Oh, God, how embarrassing. Hadn't figured on that. We just have to wait, I said. Okay. So we waited and waited. Yeah, jeez. It was a long time. How long did it take to kiss someone? Wasn't there like a time limit or something? The radio warbled out a song. It was popular right then. When the sun beats down and melts the tar upon the roof and your shoes get so hot you wish your poor feet were fireproof under the boardwalk down by the sea yeah. On a blanket with my baby, that's where I'll be. I chanced to peek my own self. The song had, if, if anything, inspired them to even greater feats of lip gymnastics. When the chorus repeated, they began what looked like a tremendous effort to inhale one another. Under the boardwalk, out of the sun, under the boardwalk, We'll be having some fun under the boardwalk. People walking above under the boardwalk. We'll be falling in love under the boardwalk. Boardwalk. Oh, God. Quietly, I scrunched up next to Janet again. Now the couple was close enough that we couldn't even whisper for fear of being detected. I was starting to get cold feet. Maybe we better bug out of there. I turned to give Janet a let's hightail it kind of a gesture. And that's when it happened. Janet was looking at me in the strangest way. It was like that very first day we met when I knew there was something different about her, her hair or her height or something. And now I had that same sensation again. And I knew she was having the same feeling about me just by the way she looked at me. How did I know? I just knew. Trust me. Up above, the couple kept kissing, and the drifters kept crooning, and the chorus kept reminding us, people walking above will be falling in love under the boardwalk. Now, if Ron was there, he would have set us straight in 2.8, but he was not there, and Janet kept on looking at me, and her eyes were an impossibly shiny brown with depthless black pupils, and for some unfathomable reason, I could not seem to quit staring at them. When she leaned forward toward me, I felt some stranger push my head forward toward her too, only there wasn't anybody else there but us. That is, if you don't count the couple three feet above us and ten feet away, who were kissing hard enough to suck the chrome off a car bumper. Janet wanted me to kiss her, too. I knew it, and you know that I knew it, the same way you have known this sensation before in your life, too. So let's just skip the trust me bit. Our lips started to pucker. Oh, my God, I thought, this is how it happens. Your lips take control of your brain. Smack! There was an audible slap from the couple above. I've often wondered, in these years that followed, if that slap was auspicious or not, but the couple stopped kissing, and we stopped almost kissing. 
Whatever that boy did to deserve the wallop must have been a, a minor infraction, for they quickly made up. But they did begin to walk again. In a couple seconds, they were going to be right over the top of us. Well, meanwhile, Janet and I had built up such a reserve of tension between us that when we burst out from beneath that bridge, the monstrous decibel level of our joint scream propelled those young lovers into a 100-yard all-out dash for survival. Buddy, it was inspiring. They ran all the way back across the bridge. That guy, he won by 20 lengths. Easy. He just left that girl he was with in the dust. That winning position probably did not do their long-term prospects all that much good. Janet wanted to go get a flashlight and come back to see if we had achieved our objective. I thought coming back to look for P might be pushing our luck a bit too much. We parted with grins so sheepish that a sheepdog would have herded us into pens without a second thought. And that was the night I discovered something I had never suspected. Single events or single words, or single moments, even a single look, can alter a relationship forever. Janet and I tried to get back to our pre-boardwalk way of being, but it was just no use. A newly awakened hormonal game, much more complicated than basketball, was evidently in the driver's seat now. Sudden feelings of surprise and confusion and delight and apprehension just swarmed over us all the time. Ron detected it right away. Aw, oh, crap, he said. Now you guys are going to be like my older sister, Linda. She used to be fun. Then she got a boyfriend. Now she's just worthless. Who am I supposed to play ball with now? Criminy, Ron, it's not our fault. We didn't do it on purpose. I mean, it's gross. Right, Janet? Janet nodded her head vigorously at the dismal state of things. As she did, I found I loved the way her Prince Valiant hair flounced around. Ron, we can still play ball, okay? For Carmony's sakes. You'll notice I had recently adopted a new word to wear out. Yeah, I doubt that. Will you come on? Give us a chance. Carmony, it was an accident. I already said we didn't do it on purpose. Plus... We'll do everything we can to make it go away. Yeah? You promise? We promised. Sincerely. And of course, it was to no avail. We couldn't undo what had been done. On the other thought, on the other hand, thought to myself, what exactly had been done? We had not kissed. We didn't hold hands. We hadn't even whispered sweet nothings. There was just this new way of regarding each other that leaked out through our eyes. And for this, we still had to suffer the indignity of being labeled boyfriend and girlfriend. For that, it was the first in a long string of indications that love, even puppy love, ain't exactly fair. Summer continued its languid slide into decline. We three continued to play ball. The school year continued to approach. I continued to run assorted words and phrases into the ground. Everything continued the same as before, but everything was different. Ron could detect me mooning over Janet at 50 paces. In mid-play, he'd drop the ball and walk away in disgust. What? I said. Criminy. Come on, man. Let's finish the game. Yeah, blah, blah. 
He'd yell over his shoulder and head for home. With the start of school came a welcome relief from our situation. Tryouts for the basketball team. Mr. Knapp hadn't exactly thought everything out with crystal clarity. Ah, uh, just come to the gym after school and I'll take over from there. Well, all 11 boys showed up, and Janet. A few of us wore tennis shoes, several wore penny loafers, and three were wearing beetle boots. No one wore anything resembling a uniform. One thing was evident right away. We had ample representation at the lower end of the basketball skill spectrum, and not so much at the upper end. Ron and Janet were our best players. Myself and two others were somewhere just below them, and the rest, the rest were like hogs on ice. Good news, everybody, cried Mr. Knapp, about 30 minutes of watching us flail around. I have arranged a game for us. We play Central Elementary in two weeks. He was just ecstatic. Yeah, they're going to have us for breakfast, said Ron. For two weeks, we met after school to practice. Mr. Knapp would unlock the gym door. He'd let us in, walk over to a table at one end of the gym, pull out a book to read, and say to us, Have at it! I suppose you could say his approach to coaching was total laissez-faire. Or maybe he just didn't know squat about basketball, whichever. But with that kind of guidance, our sessions unfolded pretty much the same each time. If everybody showed up, we'd divide into two teams of six. Well, that was not regulation, but nobody was counting, and that way everybody got to play, at least in theory. What actually happened was this. Five of us would attempt to play. The other seven engaged in something that, even all these years later, I, I just still can't find a name for it. Controlled chaos is not the right word, because there was no control. For instance, if the ball were thrown in bounds to Mike, he instantly went into something like a fight-or-flight reaction. Uh, a little aside here, no one called him Mike. He was instead referred to as Mouse, a name which more aptly described not just his size, but his movements. His feet pumped up and down maniacally. He spun around in place. A look of sheer panic glazed his eyes. And in that state, his eyes would suddenly stick in a crossed position. He'd try to find someone, anyone, upon whom he could unload the ball. Maybe he'd, he'd, he'd see Smitty, sixth grade and already shaving. Smitty could rebound like the devil himself, but he wasn't made to pass or dribble or shoot which is a distinct limitation of basketball. Mouse, let's just drop the irrelevant Mike. Mouse would fling the ball to Smitty in hopes he could make it go where he wanted by sheer force of will. But his eyes were crossed and he was spinning and his willpower was not that strong. So the ball usually went in an entirely different direction. Maybe, let's say, it would land in Morris's hands. Morris was on the opposing team. Morris was short. He was high strung. He could dribble the ball, but not while he was moving, which that's also a disadvantage in basketball. Plus, he always wore his beetle boots to practice. Out on the slick gym floor, attending to the bouncing ball, the boots made him move like a puppet in the hands of an insane puppet here. Finally, a player would dare to stick a hand into Morris's windmilling arms. Buddy, he just flailed in a patented motion I, I've never seen since. And that player then would steal the ball, make a pass down court, and someone would score. 
Now, this, of course, sparked teammate Larry into a rage. Larry was less a ball player than a gangster in training. He wore beetle boots, too, not for style, but to kick with. Whoa, whoa now, cried Mr. Knapp. It usually took something like this to get him off his seat. Stop kicking. There's no fighting. Play hard, but play fair. Play fair? They're not fair. They stole the ball, screamed Larry. What's fair about that? Where I come from, stealing's going to land you in juvie. Mr. Knapp explained how stealing the ball was actually allowed and even encouraged in basketball. It's likely that Larry took this legally sanctioned contradiction as permission to commit further antisocial behaviors. If it's okay in basketball, why not at the gas station or the bank? No need to go on. You can see that our practices were long on fun and energy and short on usefulness and learning. When it came time to play the flood of talent that was Central Elementary's team, we were about as prepared as Noah's neighbors. All this time leading up to the game, Janet and I had done our level best to downplay our status as a proto-couple in public. But when we were alone, some invisible hand gripped us and shoved us together. We mooned and swooned and such and got close to a kiss, but neither one of us could quite manage to make it happen. And so it went on, teased for being boyfriend and girlfriend, disavowing and downplaying it to others, secretly wanting to enact it in private and unable to follow through. God, if Larry thinks stealing the ball is unfair, he should get a load of this. Janet and I made a pledge. After the game against Central, we would kiss. Not like out in public on the court or anything like that, but somewhere. And later that day, we even named it out loud, our first kiss. It felt like a little living thing had been born and was actually out there walking around somewhere, waiting for us to come and claim it. Game time. We all piled into the back of Mr. Knapp's pickup truck. No pesky seatbelts to deal with in those days. Just 12 excited kids dressed in jeans and T-shirts and keds and loafers and beetle boots, and we were singing, 99 bottles of beer on the wall, 99 bottles of beer. Take one down, pass it around, 98 bottles of beer on the wall. At 63 bottles, it was time to get out and go get our butts kicked. Central had a big litter to choose from. Three classes each of fifth and sixth grades. And their coach was more involved in the actual coaching process than Mr. Knapp, which that was a pretty low bar. But their coach, he'd been running drills and playing his team since before the beginning of school. Their spiffy orange and black uniforms were smaller versions of the varsity teams. Their cheerleading squad, yeah, that's right, they had a squad. They wore orange and black outfits with orange and black pom-poms. And as we walked in late, one of the cheerleaders, Dana, did an Olympic-quality series of backflips across the gym in front of the waiting central squad. Everyone in the stands, there were lots of kids and parents, applauded and applauded. Now, our cheerleader, our one cheerleader, was Ron's sister, Rosalind. 
Roz was Ronnie's twin. She was as athletic as Ron at swimming. She was a beauty, all right. She was our only cheerleader, and like us, she came decked out in whatever she happened to be wearing to school that day. So, what happened in that game? I don't really remember all of it. But then, whoever remembers everything that happens in a train wreck? I, I suspect it was the usual. Smitty grabbed rebounds, only to stand helpless as to what to do next. Mike the Mouse, cross-eyed as always, threw the ball to the other team every time he got hold of it. I'm sure Central came to regard him as one of their players. Morris is dribbling amazed and amused everyone until a central player stole the ball away from him. This, of course, led to the inevitable foul when Larry doled out a nasty kick to the thief with his beetle boots. Those were the generalities of the situation. But there was one thing in particular that stood out. About ten minutes uh, after we started playing, the referee stopped us all. He walked over to our bench. Now, this was serious enough that Mr. Knapp had to put down his book and look up. You got six players on the court, said the ref. Uh, that's too many? asked Mr. Knapp. Yeah, one too many, says the ref. But that's not all. Somebody tells me one of them's a girl. Janet, yeah, of course, she's a girl. She's our best point guard. Is that so? Well, girls don't play basketball. What are you talking about? She's our high scorer. Of course she plays basketball. You can see she plays basketball. Due to Mr. Knapp's scanty background in sports rules and regs, the idea that a girl might not be allowed to play simply because she was a girl just never occurred to him. His only guidance, his only rule, and this never changed even after this fiasco at Central, it was this, play hard, play fair, Everybody who wants to play gets to play. Pretty good rules, huh? I'm not saying she don't know how to play. I'm saying she don't play. Not here. Not on my court. Not in my school. Girls don't play ball. Period. I'm the ref. That's final. She can go cheer or something. You know, that kind of took the wind out of our sails. It's not like we were on a glide path to victory or anything. We have... But you know, like we had a few points on the board. We were trying. <sighs> but after Janet was ejected, we just kind of went through the motions. So don't ask the final score. I do remember it. I just don't want to say. Mr. Knapp was the best clueless basketball coach I ever had. I mean, okay, I only ever played long enough through eighth grade to have two coaches but many years later, I figured out why he was the best. And it was this. Winning meant less to him than that no kid should be made to feel shame or guilt or personal deficiency by losing. He only wanted us to get one thing out of the game, the full joy of playing, hard and fair. And that's what made him a winner in our book. That and the fact that on the way home he took us all to Edwards Dog and Suds for root beer floats and tender loin sandwiches as big around as your head, which was not true. They were bigger. There we were, all crammed into the bed of the pickup, merrily singing about the bottles of beer on the wall, 
83 bottles of root beer on the wall. 83 bottles of root beer. Some of the kids dribbled root beer foam over their lips and cheeks, the better to resemble a rabid dog. Others thoughtfully applied ketchup to their heads or even coming out of their ears. They were the car wreck survivors. So, uh, having a good time then? Another curbside patron asked Mr. Knapp. He was in a sedan with his family. Absolutely, said Mr. Knapp. Little league, I guess. Oh, no, basketball. Ah, big win? Very big. 82-point spread. Oh, my gosh, that much. The losers must feel terrible right now. Mr. Knapp smiled. Nah, we're doing fine. Parents picked up most of the kids at school. Ronnie and Rosalind and Janet and I walked home. Their houses were just down the hill from the school. I was only a couple blocks further on. We lingered a bit underneath the streetlight at the bottom of the hill, kicking around the defeat and the patent unfairness of the rules that didn't let Janet play, and the glorious root beer and tenderloins, and the raucous plane in the back of the pickup truck. I'm going, you guys, said Ron. You coming, Roz? In a minute, Ron. Okay, tomorrow's Saturday. Uh, play some ball over at the swim club courts? We said sure. And so Ron left, and Janet and I were stealing glances at each other. We still had something we needed to finish, and we were eager to get on with it. Janet, said Rosalind, I'm really sorry for the way that referee stepped in and wouldn't let you play. It wasn't fair. Thanks, Roz. No big deal. That's, that's just the way it is, I guess. I thought it must feel like a big deal to her right now, on the inside, but I admired the way she didn't let it show. Roz said, I feel so sorry for all of you. I wanted to cry every time those central guys scored a point. You know, while I noticed she genuinely meant what she said, I also noticed it hadn't stopped her from eyeing several central players with more than sportsmanlike interest. But, you know, hey, we were young. In a very coach-like, no-hard-feelings, you-gave-it-a-good-try kind of way, Rosalind gave Janet a quick hug. You did your best when they let you, she said. Thanks, Roz, said Janet. Oh, and Roz, nice cheers. Rosalind turned to me. Bobby, you did your best, too, she said. And then she gave me a big sympathy hug, followed by a great, big, long, wet, full kiss on the lips. Night, she said as she skipped away. And then she slipped into her house and was gone. And somewhere out in the night, the little entity we had named First Kiss, the one that had been waiting for Janet and me to come claim it, also slipped away and was gone. Rosalind hadn't meant anything by that kiss, or not much. It just happened. The same way Janet and me under the bridge just happened, nobody planned it that way. But sometimes a single look, or a single word, a single moment, or even a single kiss can alter a relationship forever. Janet and I labored along for a while under our boyfriend-girlfriend label as before, but nothing was really the same after that night. We never did kiss. She and I and Ron played basketball together less and less after that. Life drew our attention in other directions. As for that strange feeling I got when I first saw Janet, I would experience that again, and many's the time.
but never again for someone with such a dead-on jump shot. And that's the end of that story. <laughs>